This Tridio production is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and made possible by you, our listener. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit tridio.com slash donate. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, episode number 32. I'm a doctor. I've lived for over 2,000 years. I have Scottish. I can complain about things. Hi, I'm Don Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss the latest episodes of the hit series, Doctor Who. Today we're discussing the 10th episode of Season 10, Eaters of Light, which takes us to Scotland. And I was going to do this week's episode uh, intro in a Scottish accent, and then my family convinced me otherwise, because my Scottish accent is apparently terrible. Uh, Joining me today on the panel are Father Corey Stika from Malta, Montana. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going? And I'm glad you're not doing it in a Scottish accent, E2, so... Aye, <laughs> laddie. I, I gotta get that in anyway. <laughs> and uh, Jimmy Aiken, whose ancestors do hail from Scotland, but he's coming to us from San Diego. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy. Actually, all over the British Isles, but yeah. <laughs> so uh, I, I apparently also have ancestors from that area, uh, although... Yeah, the Bettinelli clan of the Highlands. <laughs> exactly. Well, <laughs> somewhat on the, on the other side of the family, I guess. Uh, the, yeah, you wouldn't know it from my name, but... Uh, but we're 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 from over there, somewhere. Uh, so um, yeah, the the episode is the Eaters of Light, taking us to Scotland, and the writer of this episode has a an interesting distinction. Of, yeah, uh, Rona Munro. Uh, Jimmy, what's what's the the particular distinction that Rona Munro holds now? Well, um, she not only is a writer from the – there's really three. Number one, she's a woman writer, um, and which is not overly common in the history of Doctor Who. Uh, number two, she was a writer for the classic series. So she's returned uh, and has now written for both the classic and the new series. And number three, she wrote the final episode of the classic series. Uh, it was an, the season ender for the final Sylvester McCoy seven. Doctor season. Uh, it was an episode called Survival, which is kind of ironic given that the show didn't survive. And it featured the Master and some Cheetah people. And it uh, was not originally planned as the series finale. They had expected to go on and produce another season at least. And so then they got word that they weren't being renewed. And they quickly went back in and recorded an epilogue that's become kind of famous where the doctor is walking off with his companion at the time, Ace, and is talking about how we've got a, you know, somewhere... Uh, there are fires raging and somewhere there are people that need saving and somewhere the tea is getting cold. And uh, that was kind of the note that the doctor went out on before uh, the long dark in which we only had the 1996 movie before the 2005 revival. And in fact, so the, and the, to, to kind of uh, draw the conclusion, Rowan Monroe is also the only writer who wrote for be- both classic who and new who. So right. Yes. She's the only one so far uh, wow. to have bridged that gap. So it's it's a, it's sort of interesting, significant. She went on, I guess, after Doctor Who to have a a career as a playwright, and she's a I guess a quite famous playwright in in Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, for her to come back to Doctor Who is, is is a bit of a coup. I mean, this is she's a you know she's a a name as well as um, the writer of Knock Knock, uh, who. Um, 
the the name of the the script the the, the screenwriter on that one escapes me for the moment, but. Uh, he's also a, a well-known screenwriter. So we get these, uh, Mike Bartlett, that's what it was. We get these high-end playwrights uh, coming Just like in. we get high-end actors. Exactly, exactly. And, it, and, again, and authors like Neil Gaiman. Right. Mm-hmm. It, it shows the, that, you know, the, 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 the hold that Doctor Who has in, a, in, a, in our culture, uh, mm-hmm. especially in the UK, but, uh, but I think internationally as well. Uh, so, but, yes, go ahead. But, by the way, one other thing about Rona Monroe, she's also Scottish. And so this kind of Scotland-centric episode is interesting because, you know, Doctor Who is a British show, but it's not just British dominantly. Historically, it's been English dominant, not Scottish Mm -hmm. dominant. But right now we have a Scottish showrunner with Stephen Moffat, a Scottish doctor with Peter Capaldi, a Scottish master with Michelle Gomez, and a Scottish writer with Michelle Monroe. uh, um, just got her name wrong. Rona Monroe. Uh, yep. Rona Monroe. And, uh, and we have an episode set in Scotland. And yes. so I think that this is kind of, since we have the whole Scottish crew about to leave the series, my thought is this is kind of their hail Scotland farewell episode for, <laughs> for the moment. Well, especially given that it, that it films in or their home base is in Wales, which is also yeah. kind of funny. Uh, not, uh, yeah. not, not, uh, England itself. Um, you know, I, I have to wonder, of all the places that Doctor Who films, they go on location in Spain and the Azores and all these you know exotic locations, but I don't recall, at least in New Who, how, that they go to Scotland very often. Nah, it, yeah. it, it, it looks too much like Wales, or at least they can <laughs> make it look that way. Um, Wales, I guess, has enough of the kind of scenery they need for most of their filming purposes. It's not economically worth it to go other places very much in the British Isles. Now, do you know if um, the, if this was filmed in Scotland? I couldn't... I mean, it, no. looked, it looked like Scotland. It was filmed in Wales? It, it looks like Scotland, but it actually is Wales. Oh, uh, okay. All right. <laughs> well, I would... I wouldn't have been surprised, given what you just said about how maybe, you know, farewell to Scotland from uh, Doctor yeah. Who, that if they'd and actually by, gone there. And by the way, actually, our, our show cast does kind of reflect this episode a little more than at first thought, um, uh, because we have an, an Italian invader here in this podcast. <laughs> well, and, <laughs> so. and, and I'm also, I'm sorry that this is not a live uh, video podcast, because you wouldn't, you know, yeah. the listeners can't see... Uh, Jimmy's uh, Pictish face paint that he's got on. <laughs> I'm yeah, not kidding. I, he really has it. <laughs> I, I really do. I just threw that in as if we're, we're, we film this over where we tape it over Skype and so we can see each other. And as a, just a visual joke, I threw on a little face paint. All right. I'm going to take a screenshot so that uh, we can include that in the show notes. Uh, <laughs> just so people know that we're, we're not kidding here. We're, we're, we, when we get into Doctor Who, we get into Doctor Who. So, uh, Speaking of uh, uh, Italian invaders, uh, this episode, like Thin Ice uh, from earlier in the season, it delves into this interesting historical tidbit, and we find a a Doctor Who reason for uh, for you know this historical mystery. Um, In this case, it's the the famed Ninth Legion of the Roman Army, um, Mm -hmm. a real Spanish Legion. Yep, and it's a real military unit of uh, five thousand men who really did disappear in the second century. AD. There are theories. I've 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 done some reading on theories of where maybe they transferred to the Far East, and uh, but some of those theories, um, the others have been able to poke holes in them, um, and and to really kind of look at you know 
No, they they really did disappear. They just kind of you know disappeared out of history. Maybe not disappeared all at once, but they maybe you know suffered so many casualties that the unit was disbanded or something along those lines. Um, there's a famous book, and I think this is the book that Bill refers to in a minute uh, in the episode itself, by uh, from 1954 by Rosemary Sutcliffe called The uh, Eagle in the Ninth, mm. which is a story. It's a novel novelization of this story. Um, mm-hmm. I think intended for 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 kids and young adults, uh, but um, it's it it's a son of one of the Roman soldiers going to look for his father, who was one of the centurions, um, and the the uh, the standard the eagle, the eagle the, which mm-hmm. was the standard that the legion carried. So I and th- that book was extremely popular uh, at the time, um, and and I think continues to be it, it, at some level. Um, mm-hmm. Among among uh, you know certain fans and uh, especially people who like those sorts of historical mysteries. By by the way, just a word about eagles for um, uh, for uh, people who may not be aware. Um, the Roman armies, the legions carried eagles with them that were on on poles, and this was to them like a like their version of a flag. And so, to capture an eagle from a legion was like capturing the flag. Of the enemy, and it was incredibly painful for um, the uh, for the Romans if they had an eagle captured. There was right. at one point in the Battle of the Tudorburg Forest, which is a famous first-century battle during the time of Augustus, where the Germans massacred like three Roman legions and got all of their eagles. And the legions were under the command of a general named Quintilius Varus. And afterwards, Augustus was so distraught that even though Quintilius Varus was now dead, he would apparently go around the palace in Rome shouting, Quintilius Varus, where are my eagles? (laughs) And the Romans undertook a systematic search and it took years but they eventually got back all of those eagles wow and um the association between eagles and the roman army is so tight that as their standards that it's likely um part of the background to in uh the gospels where when jesus is predicting the destruction of the temple in jerusalem and they ask where you know what where and when and uh, and Jesus says where the eagles are gathered there will the body be and so mm-hmm. that's likely one of the part of the background to the gospels is this eagle roman army symbolism that's very interesting it's 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 um the the roman army um in this area too it's or or the story of the ninth especially Mm-hmm. It's it bears it actually has a very important um, it's a it's a very important cause for the shape of modern Great Britain as well. Um, I I was reading to this uh, somewhat after the the, the disappearance or the destruction of the of the Ninth Legion, um, Emperor Hadrian himself came to Britain um, and built a wall and 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 ordered this this wall to be built uh, um, between what is now England and 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 Scotland. And it was this wall that both kept out these these very difficult uh, Pictish Celts from the north, and uh, the uh, you know, and and also sort of controlled the uh, the people from the south from from too much contact with them, and and uh, getting getting um, uh, cross pollinated. Yeah, contamination of their thought uh, into rebellion, and so the this Hadrian's Wall, which you can still see, it's, it's in some ways a little like the Great Wall of China. It still exists, and it's and it cut right across from from uh, east to west, 
and it it kind of created modern day Scotland and England. Uh, you know that the different cultures, this, these differences that have been you know even to today, where you have uh, the 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 folk of Scotland who still want to be independent from from the people of mm-hmm. of England. Uh, in Great Britain. So it's also kind of the Mason-Dixon line of England, only with the North seceding. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, and still today in the in the in current events. So um, so what we start with though is um, before the credit opening credits, we have a teaser um, where we have these uh, cute Scottish kids with their their cute accents somewhere near Aberdeen, um, near uh, the, this place called uh, the Devil's Cairn. <laughs> Yeah, which I I did some I tried to do some research. I don't think there's an actual this is an actual place. No, nah, it's fictional. Okay, so um, but it's in the story. It's a haunted hill that people say that uh, you can sometimes hear music be playing by uh, the ghosts or the fairy people. Um, and if you listen to it, you'll you'll get taken by the ghosts. And this, of course, becomes you know uh, as we know uh, part of the story at the at the end of uh, the the uh, the episode. And then we have this crow uh, saying "doctor" uh, as it as it as it uh, crows uh, its way along, and then we see a carving of the TARDIS on a rock, which is uh, you know on uh, this ancient rock, which is a, 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 something that they've done uh, quite a lot in Doctor Who, where we see this you know oh this ancient thing that has a picture of the TARDIS on it that shouldn't be there, that sort of thing. There was kind of a funny. Uh speculation i saw on on reddit where did the tardis choose the the vision of the police box which was based off of the vision of the tardis so police <laughs> boxes took the shape they did because of the tardis appearing in history Ooh. so that when the first doctor's tardis appeared and grabbed a police box it was kind of filling its own it's a timey wimey prophecy oh yeah, timey wimey i hate time paradoxes <laughs> <laughs> Chick, for which came first, chicken or the egg? Police box of the TARDIS. Um, yep. So uh, then we have the credits. And, and uh, you know, I want to just kind of throw it as a sort of overarching uh, idea. And maybe we can we can kind of uh, ruminate on this. So I saw some people online talking about the, they felt like the doctor in this episode is a bit out of sorts or is out of a little out of character even, um, hmm. it, which they kind of likened to. Um, the end, the like the last episodes of previous doctors, like the, almost like they can kind of sense that the the end of their time and in this regeneration uh, is coming. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, in the story, not out, not the actor outside the story, but in the story. Um, I didn't really get that from it, except yeah. there is a moment towards the end where he actively talks about regeneration, and I thought there was obvious foreshadowing there, but. Yeah. You know, Peter Capaldi's doctor has generally always been cranky. Right. And and my fo- feeling was, is, you know, it, given that it's a very Scottish episode, I think he was going back to the whole, as, as you can hear. I can hear, complain about things. <laughs> in yeah. our opening um, uh, uh, music, you can hear him quoted saying, I'm Scottish, I can complain about things. So I, I feel mm-hmm. like that was kind of playing. He was getting his attack eyebrows ready. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, uh, so after the credits, we have the 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 TARDIS appears in second century, uh, well, where Aberdeen would have been. Uh, now it's a big open field. Um, Nardole is for some reason Nardole is in his pajamas, which is th- awesome. Yeah, I'm not sure that was ever fully explained, but you know, that's like, no. you get the idea that they kind of like they they just sort of took the TARDIS while he was sleeping, you know, somewhere. They just they took the TARDIS. Uh, on him uh, on a on a field trip, 
Yeah, and he at one point he says, "I want to go back to bed." So they they touch on it, but they don't go into it more than that. Right. And, well, I think it's I think it's been clear that he sleeps on the TARDIS. He lives on the TARDIS. Yeah. Even when he's at back at the the uh, university, so yeah, so it makes sense that he kind of stumbles out of bed. Wait, why are we moving? And he's still cranky about them, you know, leaving the vault and their sacred duty to guard the vault, which is kind of interesting given how you know last episode he. He let Missy out of the vault to help them go rescue yeah. the doctor. And they didn't seem that upset about going to Mars, which actually the doctor kind of points out. Like, well, you didn't, you weren't so cranky when we, uh, when we went off to Mars. Uh, so, you know, why, why are you so cranky now? Uh, so this, it's kind of this funny back and forth, which yeah. I think should be probably given what, you know, that the, the, the season finale starts next week. The, the, this whole back and forth about the sacred duty to guard the vault is probably done. This is probably the end of it. Yeah, I mean, I suspect we'll have a little more discussion of it, you know, next time, given what we know about next time. But um, but I'm just glad that they no longer have Nardal's only function in the show being nagging the doctor about the vault. Right. Um, in this episode, Matt Lucas gets way more to do. He's oh, yeah. a hilarious character in this episode. And I just, I don't, I don't want, I don't, we, they haven't announced that Nardole is going, but I suppose he is. Mm-hmm. I just, I think his character is great and yeah. I love having him around. He might be the best, best thing about this season in some ways. I mean, he didn't get mm-hmm. a lot to do in some episodes, but. Him uh, and, him and Missy now that Missy's out of the box. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love Peter Capaldi, but you know, he's been pretty much steady the last season in this one um but nardole is the is the is the best new element uh here um so we get this this bet going between the doctor and bill i mean she's she's a bit full of hubris here we have the uh the 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 mask you know the 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 master of time and space himself who's been everywhere and seen everything and she's uh disputing with him about the fate of the ninth legion because she's read some books um, Which frankly it. is an is a refreshing thing on Doctor Who. I mean, whether she's right or wrong, having a companion tell the Doctor you're wrong and I know more about this than you do is really exactly. refreshing. I'd like to see more of that. <laughs> well, and again, maybe this is a part of Rona Monroe being, you know, uh, someone who's more, you know, more used to the the classic Who, um, and that being the case then, and bringing that sort of forward. I like that. Um, I, I, the doctor kind of talks about how he, you know, I've lived in uh, second century, you know, Roman Britain. I've farmed in Roman Britain. I've governed in Roman Britain. And, um, and I, of course, I have to go back and I, I don't know that they made a specific reference to it, but I mm-hmm. wonder if they at all were making any kind of reference to when Peter Capaldi played the Roman citizen uh, at Pompeii oh. um, in any of that. I, I didn't catch it, but I, I tried to see. Yeah, I don't know. I I don't recall that episode, which is the fires of Pompeii. Right. Um, I don't recall enough about that character's background. I don't think he had been in Britain. Maybe he was. Yeah. Um, also, they could be alluding to um, the Pandorica opens where Matt Smith's doctor went to a uh, similar era as basically a second century Roman Britain. Um, and you had, or maybe first century, and you had um, uh, River Song impersonating Cleopatra. 
Right. Um, so there could have been a connection there in in terms of his overall speech. By the way, um, in his overall speech about all the things he's done in this time period, he also says he was a Vestal Virgin second class. <laughs> yep. And and so for vest so for another another bit of Roman history for people who may not know, the Vestal Virgins were an order of women religious in um, Rome in this time frame, and they were devoted to uh, Vesta, and they were, Rome thought very highly of the Vestal Virgins. They were virgins, although they could later leave the order and marry if they wanted, Um, but they were supposed to be virgins at the time, and if they violated their virginal vow, terrible things were supposed to happen to Rome. So their sanctity was considered very important for the prosperity and well-being of the city of Rome. And so this was a very important institution at the time. Um, They were basically pagan priestesses. um, And they dressed, despite that, they dressed very modestly um, because sanctity was and chastity was very important to them as a religious order. And so that's what the doctor's playing off of here. Uh, I don't know exactly. I, I think the second class thing is just some kind of a joke because the doctor's obviously not a virgin and hasn't been since his first incarnation, since he had a granddaughter. Right. Um, he also has never been female before. We know all of his incarnations and none of them have been female. So he couldn't have been a vestal virgin for that reason, too. So presumably that's why he's talking about being a second class one. I like that Nardo kind of uh, he kind of latches onto the second class part of it, and he just like sort of yeah. can't believe second class. <laughs> yeah, that's the part that that seems unbelievable is the second class. Uh, I assume that's kind of like a modern third order member or something. Right, yeah. right. So um, they, the Bill and the Doctor split up to go test their theories. Um, Bill thinks that the Legion would be down by the river. That's how they would have traveled south. Uh, the doctor thinks that, uh, I don't know, that they're over in, the, in another field. I, I don't know what, you know, where he's planning to wander, but he does. Uh, as we know, when they, whenever he, the doctor and the companion split up, it's never a good thing. Something bad is going to happen. I will, I will say, though, for all the times in Doctor Who that they've split up companions that have been so contrived, this is probably mm-hmm. the most refreshing of, you know what? You go your way. I'll go my way. We'll figure this out. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's just... Straightforward. They're separating because they're going different directions. That's it. Right. Right. <laughs> what's What's a little different, or what's a little not different this time, is Bill immediately falls down a hole, and we saw that like two episodes ago, or was it even yeah. just it was last episode? Actually, right. By the way, I have a feeling that those tunnel sets were the same sets from mm-hmm. Empress of Mars. <laughs> yeah. I would not be surprised at all if they just reused the set. Yeah, just That's relight great. them in a different way. Yeah. Yeah, Bill. Yeah, the, as someone pointed out, Bill has a habit of falling in these holes everywhere. Uh, she used to watch her step. Um, but before she falls in the hole, she encounters uh, a Pictish girl who's uh, praying for her dead ancestors. Um, even as some alien beast stalks them, we get this, uh, which is now a bit of a trope. This uh, seeing through the eyes, of, yeah, of the of the alien beast, which I think comes from the movie Predator. I think that's I think really the first time you, we've seen oh, no. something like that. Um, no, or, no, that. That classic that who goes used way that back. regularly. Oh, did they? Okay, all right. Uh, yeah, because I was also, trying to think of also, versions of that. I, I think I think that's back in like B movies going way back. Really, so just throwing a filter over the camera and you know yep. it's getting a funky effect. Okay, uh, okay, I'll, I'll uh, I guess I'm wrong on that. But um, 
but in any case, it's a it's a standard trope. Um, Bill tries to engage with the the girl as a conversation, and the girl uh, being a picked <laughs> freaks out at her and starts chasing her uh, <laughs> and falls, which we which is kind of a nice little gimmick of um, kind of showing us the that this girl, um, the picked girl, is not a warrior. She's not a competent adult, you know, warrior. She's you know still a, a child in some ways. Um, Bill falls in the hole and meets a Roman. Um, and then we cut back to the doctor and Nardole. Um, By the way, yeah. uh, in terms of the reason that, and the girl's name, as we find out, is, uh, is Carr. Carr. Yep. Um, the reason that Carr attacks, I assume, they don't really explain this that I recall, but um, she just sees Bill and screams and attacks. And mm-hmm. I assume that she's thinking Bill must be a Roman. Right, because that's she's she's obviously not one of the natives, and so she, I think that that's the logic here. She thinks well, Bill's a Roman, and that's why she attacks. Well, she probably sees the red shirt, and of course, Romans wore red underneath their yeah. underneath armor. their armor. Oh, yeah, and also that two of the Roman soldiers that we see in this episode are of of African origin, and therefore. Right. Um, and, and, and nobody, no picked from from northern, you know, northern uh, uh, British Isles is of that skin color. So the, I think that that's a natural right. connection she'd make. And and that's not unbelievable in terms of of Roman armies because they incorporated not only did Romans pick up citizens eventually from all over the place, um, mm-hmm. they also uh, had. Uh, people from other cultures serving in their armies, like Germans yes. who were on their side, yes. or Africans who were on their side. If you were willing to fight for the Romans, they would be happy to let you do so. Right. They they had the legions and the auxiliaries that uh, that were often that made up from local uh, folks. Yep. Yeah. Um, so now the Doctor and Nardole are, are walking along and discussing how the crows can talk. Uh, the Doctor seems nonplussed by this. It's not a big deal. Uh, this um, it's saying dark. Uh, Nardole says, you crows don't talk in the future. And, and the doctor says, humans stopped having interesting conversations with them. And now they're in a, a bit of a huff. It's, you can yeah, tell don't you hear that sound they make. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, they encounter a, a stone cairn, which is, uh, the, as the doctor says, oh, go ahead, Jimmy. By the way, one this bit about crows talking is even though it comes across as just kind of a bit of Doctor Who science fairy tale, um, it's actually not that out of the realm of possibility. Avian intelligence is higher than uh, people have often estimated, and it really is possible for certain birds, like, for example, parrots, to learn a certain number of words and be able to use them in a way uh, that mm. is intelligible. So you can kind of hold primitive conversations with some birds. They're not right. just repeating what you say. They can actually use words intelligently up to a certain extent. Well, and crows, which even though that we haven't, even though they don't have the facility with, with imitating words that maybe parrots do, Crows are the the believed to be the most intelligent or among the most intelligent of all birds. I mean, they mm. are they remember faces. They remember they mm. they can distinguish a particular person and they'll, attack you if they don't like you. Exactly. If you, if they if they have a reason to, <laughs> to not like you, they'll they'll remember you. Um, that's one of the reasons why my wife likes to. We have crows nearby. She throws peanuts on the roof for them. Uh, oh. mm. <laughs> so uh, to make make friends with the crows. 
uh, which is there you uh, go. <laughs> don't don't want to reenact Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds here. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Leave them tribute, and they'll leave you alone. Um, <laughs> but uh, yes, and that's so. That's a good point. People long believed that they could converse with with crows. I mean, that's a that's not just a Doctor Who thing. That's a, a thing throughout history. Uh, so they encounter the stone cairn, uh, which is a cairn is a type of a stone building or stone structure. Um, so st- mm-hmm. stone cairn would be, I think, redundant, I guess. Uh, but as the doctor says, it's under the ground and close to the sky, uh, which means it's built under the ground on top of a hill. Uh, that's c- kind of mm-hmm. the idea. Uh, and that they was believed to be a, uh, a door between worlds. Also true. That's that's uh, archaeologically we understand that's how pe- the ancients saw these. Um, and, some cairns, anyway. They some had, some yeah. of them had different functions. Right. Um, the doctor calls it a, a Stone Age church, and and then he says, "Now this is you're gonna have to help me on this because I'm not sure exactly what was said, with, given the accent." Uh, he says to what you know, asks Nardole, "What do you always find near churches?" And I thought Nardole said, "Women in hats." Yeah. But, but did he mm-hmm. did he did he say women women in huts or hats? Hats. I thought he because, said hats. Yeah, okay. and this is actually that sinks in to uh, to another biblical thing. Actually, in Christian culture historically, women have worn hats in church and men have not, and that goes back to a passage in one of Saint Paul's letters to the Corinthians. So oh. it's part of the Christian historical tradition, and that has bled over to where even today in a lot of churches, women will wear hats or some other head covering and men won't. And in recent history, like in the 19th century, women would either would even wear really fancy hats right. to go to church to kind of mm-hmm. show off a little bit. And that was often a target of some uh, criticism at the time of you're not supposed to be showing off in church. So what are you doing yeah. with the fancy headdresses? Okay. So, and then if there are women in hats, that means there's villages nearby. And so what they're looking for are the, the residents who should be living near this, mm-hmm. this cairn. Um, again, we of get course, a, that's like true of every building. If, <laughs> what do you find in buildings? People, people. <laughs> there must be a settlement nearby. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, we get another great, uh, Scotland reference. Uh, Nardole says it's all a, a, a bit damp though, isn't it? And the doctor responds, it's Scotland. It's supposed to be damp. You know, it's yeah. sort of like a, yep. uh, a, a reference there. Um, then we're we're back to Bill in the in a hole in the ground. In, in a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit named Bill. Uh, apparently, <laughs> she's going to live in live in lots of holes. Uh, she discovers uh, in her conversation with the with the uh, the Roman discovers that the TARDIS has a telepathic translation matrix. Uh, yeah, and this is great the way this yep. happens for her because other compa- – I mean we went a long time in Doctor Who before any companion ever raised this question of right. how do mm-hmm. I hear this. And eventually Sarah Jane Smith brought it up and the Doctor explained it's a Time Lord gift and I'm sharing it with you. But it wasn't explained that it was the TARDIS's telepathic circuit either um, right. until – until later on, until New Who, if I recall yes. correctly. And so you had these kind of two competing explanations. Number one, it's a Time Lord gift, which sounds like the Doctor does it. But then you have this TARDIS explanation as well. And Bill br- merges both of those elements of Doctor Who history by saying, oh, it's the Doctor doing it, or it's the TARDIS, or what. And so, but she's able to do. De- 
realize this and deduce this on her own without any help from the doctor or anybody else. And I just thought that was awesome. Well, I, it, I, I did like the way she, she phrased that about, I wish I'd studied Latin so I could sit there and converse with you so you could understand me. It's like, yeah. I do understand you. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was great too. Did either of you have, I mean, I kept wanting to back translate the dialogue into Latin in those scenes, um, but I wasn't, I wasn't quite quick enough. <laughs> yeah. I'm not, I do not have that facility in Latin. So I would, uh, I, I'm not sure I would uh, have even attempted it, but it would be fun. Well, I like that the Roman, you know, she says to the Roman, you know, you're speaking English to me. And he says, to her, you, you literally just said that in Latin. <laughs> yeah. What's the English? I don't What's know English? this English. Yeah. Because yeah. English don't, won't exist for another, well, this is second century. So English won't exist for about another 700 years. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I like, uh, I love the, uh, was it Fires of Pompeii where Donna was going to, spoke Latin. You know, she said the, the famous, you know, Caesar line of a came I saw I conquered mm-hmm. and said it in Latin. It's like, I don't speak what. What, what did Gaelic. you say? What, Gaelic, yeah. I don't speak Gaelic. <laughs> In fact, I think that episode, Fires of Pompeii, is where the the the, the new Who translation matrix. Um, uh, they definitely took it to a new level there. Yeah, that's where that that it came in. Um, so, uh, what do we have here? We have um, the translation matrix, and basically, uh, that's that's what we get from that scene. And so now we shift to the Doctor and Nardole. They've discovered the remains of the Legion. Uh, uh, th- these uh, piles of flesh with no bones. Uh, the bones have been disintegrated. Uh, this this is a part I had a little trouble with because it's you know it the the fact that there are no bones is supposed to explain why why in the future there the the legion disappears is because when the flesh disintegrates there's no bones to be left behind. But mm-hmm. there's all this armor laying around. Right. <laughs> um. And and also. They're also creating a huge story problem for themselves, which is this whatever killed them is devastatingly powerful and right. way more powerful than than what we see later in the episode. Exactly. There's no way that that they should be able to defeat this creature the same way. To, as to be fair, I, th- I think they do kind of answer that, but it's not. Yeah, it's not as not plausible. tidy as it should be. Right. Um, I do like the fact that they were killed by Scotland. <laughs> yes, De- <laughs> death by Scotland. That was a great. That was a great line. Um, well, the other th- problem here is, is is it's a it's a classic Who problem. You know, the the Doctor immediately goes right, like the bones are missing. Therefore, the reason is a total absence of any sunlight. Like, like there's yeah. no possible other explanation. Like, it couldn't be a creature that makes their bones uh, transport somewhere else. It couldn't be like there's like, but no, it has to be this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's that's. A, I mean, if if I have a criticism, it's it's this little bit here where the we we just have to make this. We have to kind of hang a lantern on it and just make this jump that the doctor diagnoses the problem and we move on. What what he should have done, and this is one of the <clears throat> I, I sometimes am a little more forgiving of things you could fix on the dialogue level, um, and this is one that you could because all he had to do was whip out his sonic screwdriver, take a scan, and 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 give that explanation. Yes, that's true. In fact, now that you mention it, I don't think we see the sonic screwdriver a, a single time in this episode. Mm-mm. Yeah, we haven't seen re- it in a while. We haven't seen it in a while, actually. Uh. uh- did he use it last week? Uh, he, well, he used sonic sunglasses in the Monks trilogy while he was blind. Right. See, I'm, he, I'm trying to remember. Have we seen it since there was? Um, they were broken. The suit. Yeah. The suit broke it. I don't. Have we seen it since then? 
I don't know if we have, but but we know he has others because at the beginning of the season, they yeah. show us a whole pen holder full of them on his desk at the university. The old, old style ones, yeah. Right, right. It's a good point. Um, there was something about it. kind of interesting. Last it's, week, he said something about the wooden door uh, when they were put in the in the brig. Oh, yeah, uh, that's that right. It's wood. still doesn't yep. have a setting for wood, so we have seen it. Yeah. Yeah, that actually goes back to uh, Silence in the Library, which was one of the episodes that Stephen Moffat wrote during uh, Russell T. Davis's time where he announced it doesn't do wood. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and then you had that great setup uh, on the uh, the 50th. The, the the fiftieth anniversary, yeah. where they're oh, it's just about ready to solve the solution, and Claire just walks in. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, we end this bar- this scene with uh, them captured by the the picks, uh, and we go back to uh, uh, Bill and the Roman uh, named uh, what Lucius, I think his name was. Uh, I don't have that in my notes, but mm-hmm. as I recall, uh, they they climb out of the hole. It's it's dark out now because of course uh, I like the the something that they do. They kind of invert things here, which is. Um, we're usually afraid of the dark. That's when the, 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 the creatures that we as human beings are naturally afraid of, that's when they're strongest. But in this, the creature is strongest in the light. It's the daytime that we need to be most afraid of mm-hmm. the creature. So it's, right, it was it's, an, yeah, it's, it's an, an eater, of, eater light. of light. Yeah, so it's an interesting flip that they go, they go here, um, even though it still can kill at night, as we see. But there's this interesting flip of, the, of, of our natural fears uh in here so um but they escape the hole uh and hear the beast coming uh lucius is quickly uh eaten by the 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 creature uh but not before he can tell bill that uh his his fellow uh, romans uh survivors are hiding underground by the sign of the fish uh there's a, a carving and uh she barely gets into the cave as she's hit by a tentacle and injured and she collapses uh as the uh, as she he finds the other Romans who have deserted the Ninth Legion, um, and and that's about it. There, that's we get our first look at the creature, um, and you know she's got a bit of uh, jeopardy, but there's not a whole lot else that happens here. Am I missing anything? No, the guy dies is the important part. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we, so we get back to the Doctor and Nardole. They're now being held by the Picts in their in their hut as they wait for Carr to return. Um, it, I like what Nardole trying to ingratiate himself with the, uh, yeah. the picks. <laughs> I, it's one of two great moments where someone asks Nardole, what are you doing? And he has a perfectly sensible explanation. I'm ingratiating myself. <laughs> and, and later, as we'll see, it totally works. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, and I like it. Like, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, father. I was going to say the doctor's completely annoyed by it. Yes. I mean, it just. Drives him up the wall. <laughs> uh, he says, "I'm against Sometimes- charm." Uh, yeah, yes, we all know that. <laughs> Sometimes you catch more picks with honey than with vinegar, mm. <laughs> or popcorn, because he was trying to offer the popcorn. I was, I was going to say the popcorn. Es- now, the popcorn escape in this scene is really interesting. Um, it's not entirely believable the way it actually pops and lets them escape, but yeah. Um, but what's interesting about it is so this is this is. This is New World corn. Now, in historically in English, the word corn just meant any kind of grain. Right. But to have popcorn, you need Indian corn or maize or yeah. New World corn or whatever you want to call it. So this would have been outside of their experience. They wouldn't have yeah. known what popcorn was, and thus they wouldn't – when the doctor throws the bag of it into the fire, they wouldn't have been expecting what then happens. 
Yes. Yeah, and, you could see it. They all kind of looked, and what was that? Oh, well. Right. Yeah. They saw him throw it in, but they didn't expect anything to, to come of it. But he kind of says, you know, em- like, uh, you know, you're all afraid and embrace your fear as we escape in the confusion uh, or something yeah. to that effect. Yeah. The, another interesting uh, part of this scene is he refers to uh, Carr as an embryo. And, and it's, he often, throughout this episode, talks about the, other, the others as children. He's got this very yeah. uh, paternalistic, condescending attitude toward, the, toward everyone here. Um, and all of the characters who have speaking lines, whether they're Picts or Romans, are in fact children. Yes, uh, they're as we, in their teens. As yes, children as we would define them. Although uh, at that time they might actually have been adults. Yeah. I mean that that is when you're mm-hmm. able to bear children, you're you're yeah. um, able to be an adult. Um, also, they don't, and this is kind of weird. They don't really point it out, but. The, it, this society isn't just the Pictish society isn't just children. Um, there are also old people yes. um, in the backgrounds. None of them get speaking lines, but they're old people. And, you know, you can see that. I mean, the men have gray beards and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And um, and so it seems that even though they're focusing on the children, this uh, clan of Picts <clears throat> had all of its main adults wiped out somehow probably by the romans apparently apparently by the romans yeah. so that all you had left were the very young and the very old who couldn't fight right and this is where we have it revealed where car you know basically says that she released you know that they the this tribe of picts they stand in the gap they they block the uh the door when it opens occasionally um and keep the eaters of light from coming through um but she intentionally released this eater of light to defeat the Romans and with the hope that it would be weakened by the Romans enough that they could then kill it, um, yeah. uh, which what, goes awry. What does, right. And what doesn't ring quite true about this is if the Romans were sparing the young and the old, they would have spared the women too. And they didn't. Right. Um, because we don't see any adult women who aren't old. Unless, so, unless Pictish women were also warriors. There were some. Yeah, and I'm, some, Some of them might have fought, but then if they did, that would have provoked a general slaughter of everybody. Right, uh, right. Yeah, it's 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 the, the there's a weakness in the in there in there. Yeah. Well, there's also the car ha- seems to have a quite a lot of knowledge about the Roman Empire at large, you know, and the the way that they uh, run things throughout mm-hmm. the world. A lot more than I would expect uh, a girl mm-hmm. from the from the you know Pictish tribe to know. Mm-hmm. It's it's certainly something. I mean, it is perhaps a little implausible, but it, it that is knowledge that was out there at the time. It that is that a I guess she's eighteen or something like that. Yeah. Um, that an eighteen year old girl from this remote a place would have been able to articulate it all that well would be a little unusual. It's certainly a sign that she's very intelligent, and that would help make her mm-hmm. a natural leader for the group. Um, but I I love her speech about the empire being thievery. Right. Um, you because there is that that is a big aspect of what it is. They believed in a zero sum game economy, and so the only way to get rich was by impoverishing other people. They didn't have a constructive engagement where everybody can prosper together. View of econ- of economics, and um, and so uh, this was a big part of ancient warfare and empire building. 
Um, what she's not seeing is the flip side, which is that there actually were, even though the Romans, you know, did immoral things in conquering other peoples, they did bring some benefits to their lives, including greater social organization, access to medicine, economic improvement, indoor plumbing, greater, greater degree of peace, <laughs> indoor, well, <laughs> the doctor yeah, says aqueducts and things like that. Um, but was the there Romana, something from Monty Python about that? What have yes. the Romans ever done for us? Nah, I'm yeah, kidding. and then they named five <laughs> things in Life of Brian. Um, but, I mean, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace that extended over the empire, was actually a benefit in the long term. It mm -hmm. was achieved at the price of great brutality, but it, uh, it also did help in uh, the long term in some ways. And so I, I totally sympathize with her speech. Um, about, uh, you know, the empire is just thievery. I, it, I, it, it's so believable and articulate from her point of view. The historian in me, though, sees this other side of things. Right. And right. it's like, okay, this is very bad what they've done, but there will be a silver lining in the end. And that's the interesting, you know, but, interesting tension with between, you know, it, the looking at things from a historical perspective versus looking at things from a personal perspective is, yeah. you know, history is great, but when you're the one who's at the spear point, mm -hmm. um, yeah. it's, it, you know, that doesn't matter to you. Um, I found it interesting when you talk about that, this is the time of the Pax Romanum, and there was that really good line, you know, they, they create deserts and call it peace, you know, the, this idea they destroy, um, and that's how they, make, they get their peace. I agree with you, the, the, the uh, uh, in the aggregate, in, uh, in in the historical perspective, the Roman Empire turns out to have been a good thing, but um, I, I also appreciate that perspective. By the way, kind of going back to uh, something, you know, commenting about how could they, you know, talk about this creature, how could this creature be so powerful that it can wipe out an entire legion, but yet this small group of, you know, and this small group of people is going to be able to kill it. This is where they kind of uh, patch over that a little bit, where she mentions about how, that the creature was basically left weakened after the battle. Yeah. You know, the idea was it was going to wipe out the Romans, but the Romans were going to be strong enough to at least kill it before they were finally all killed. Right. You know, That's so the idea is, close. you know, so this is, this is where it's saying, okay, they can defeat it because this creature is still in a weakened state. And then of course they talk about, okay, the creature is getting stronger now because it's feeding again. You know, so mm -hmm. yeah, they kind of, that's kind of how they answer that objection, but it's a pretty weak yeah, we yes. also have a critical failure point again in this episode, which is the cairn, as we'll see. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Uh, I, I like uh, Nardole's, uh, uh, his, at this point, also, uh, you know, um, rejects the, the claim that he's a Roman. Uh, I, you know, I'm not Italian, but although I make a, a mean spag bowl, uh, which is a, yeah. a, a pasta bowl. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Spaghetti bolognese, with spaghetti with meat sauce. Yes. Mm, yep. Um uh, no, it's lunchtime. I better get some uh, get this old podcast over. With. Um, so uh, they uh, the doctor and Nardole um, escape, and then they head off to the cairn, which the doctor re refers to as the maximum danger point in the immediate area. Uh, when Nardole says, well, "Shouldn't we be looking for Bill?" He says, "Well, if if Bill's there, we're saving her, and if she's not, she's safer where she is." Basically, um, which is an interesting it's an interesting way of sort of uh, letting us understand why the doctor is not is doing this instead of. Looking yeah. for Bill. Yep. Um, well, he sort of is looking for Bill. He just doesn't know if he's going to find her here or not. Right. And it, what he's doing is reasonable, but it doesn't mean she's at all not dead. Right. <laughs> right. Especially if this beast is roaming around. Uh, but uh, the doctor does. He goes into the cairn uh, and discovers the gate that opens when the dawn hits it. Uh, steps in, 
for I, I'm not sure why. I I would like I do not uh, recommend passing through interdimensional gates when you see them. But so he, but he steps in, uh, sees it filled with millions of these beasts, and uh, uh, he's only in there for a few seconds, and then he comes out and. Uh, okay. Yep. Go ahead. Did, did he actually cross the threshold? I know he went up to it, but did he actually go inside? Because this will be important later. He did. He stepped into the... Uh, as, uh, I looked at this carefully. He did... Mm-hmm. They do show him actually... I mean, they make a point of doing a, a shot of his foot, feet as he steps into the, the threshold okay. of this gate. So he's in I, the, the field. I, I missed that, so that'll affect one of my comments later on. Okay. okay. So um, when he comes out, two days have passed, um, and you know he's shocked. So there's yeah. a time dilation effect uh, w- with regard to this. And Nardole, by the way, has gone native like our, like our friend Jimmy has, uh, with, <laughs> with Pictish writing on his face and that sort of thing. He, he he also is telling them a story, and it's a it, the way Nardole is remembering it, and it's a very funny story. But the way Nardole is remembering it, he's actually explaining another famous historical disappearance of a bunch yeah. of people. So there's kind yeah. of a meta thing happening at this point in the episode yeah, because it's the, about the, the disappearance of the Ninth Legion. And so Nardal is telling a story about the disappearance of the crew of the Mary Celeste, which was a ship in the uh, 1800s that we found, but all of the people were just gone. And they apparently left in a big hurry. I mean, they had... They left all their stuff. One of the things that historians have commented on is like they found the sailors' pipes and tobacco left on the ship, which if you were a sailor, you wouldn't leave the ship without taking that at the time. Mm. And so they'd left in a big hurry, and nobody to this day knows why. And there are all these theories about what may have happened to the people on the Mary Celeste. And Nardal is giving this explanation involving an alien, and there was a misunderstanding because the alien thought you communicated the way his race did by digesting each other. <laughs> and, and which this is which is really is probably funny. The, yeah but it's so this also, is probably the oh, sorry go ahead sorry it's also the it's also not the first explanation we've had no. on doctor who <laughs> for what happened on the mary celeste if you go back to the first doctor's era william hartnell there's a serial called the chase where the doctor yep. is being chased by the daleks through time and one of the places they land is the mary celeste they don't know that they're on the mary celeste the audience learns that but the characters don't but then the daleks appear and everybody jumps overboard and so we've actually seen an explanation on doctor who for what happened to the mary celeste before and i think they're alluding i think they allow for that in nardal's speech because when he's telling his alien digestion story he says he thinks the name of the ship was the mary celeste but he's not altogether sure so he may be talking about a different ship well, it's also not the first time we've heard the name Mary Celeste, or at least seen the yep. name Mary yeah. Celeste in this season. Yep. Uh, the first episode, the pilot, uh, uh, named the pilot, we saw the this nameplate of some sort from the Mary yep. Celeste. So uh, it, I'm, I'm not sure uh, whether that was intentional on their part, whether it was supposed to be a link. I'm not sure what the, the reason for that was, but uh, but we, we, we do see it. Uh, and then he ends, oh, go ahead. If you go with Nardal's story, it could be that he was there for that adventure and time has been rewritten. And so we've had more than one explanation for the disappearance of the people. And Nardal was there for one of them. Okay. Yes. Uh, and then he ends by saying something about, uh, next time I'll tell you about the Lusitania, which is a, yeah. which is another <laughs> another interesting story. 
So um, now, uh, let's see. Uh, Bill, we, we switch back to Bill finally. Now it's been two days later. She's still underground with the Romans um, who are using a uh, sunlight therapy to cure her of the, the slime that she got hit with by the uh, Eater of Light. Um, mm-hmm. um, we we Just a little bit of time with her, then we switch back to the doctor confronting Carr about what she knows about the portal. Um, and she kind of expands a little more. Every generation, a new warrior enters the gate and fights the Eater of Light so it can't break through. Um, so I don't think there's much there. We just get a little bit more explanation. Um, back to Bill in the un- underground with the Romans. And we get this awkward conversation about the, the Romans' modern attitudes toward sexual orientation um, and how uh, Bill's um, lesbianism is, a, is, is, is quaint and old-fashioned. Um, and this, yeah, this this, uh, this actually isn't realistic for for second century Romans. Right. Um, there, there. It would have been more believable if it was fourth century BC Greeks. Um, but uh, but this actually isn't quite true to the period. Right. Romans were not. Uh, they were not uh, as as a modern would say so enlightened quote unquote. But this was not yeah. the way that they did things. Yeah. Um, I mean, undoubtedly, there were people of of various proclivities, but uh, including Julius times. Caesar, right, right. But this was not; it, it wasn't a one to one convergence. We don't need to go too much in depth on that, but right. Um, but this is once again where we where the 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 producers of Doctor Who are are taking advantage of the fact that they have the first uh, a gay character, um, uh, you know, outwardly mm-hmm. gay character on the show uh, to make a uh, a point. Uh, so. Well, back to the doctor confronting Carr about her plan uh, that to use the Eater of Light to kill the Legion, and uh, and and then and for the Legion to weaken the animal. I liked his uh, sort of dismissal of her um, TV aerial uh, weapon yeah. and, and po- lollipop monster killing weapon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I mean it's it's so so dismissive uh, the doctor. I mean it's very it's very uh, amusing. Um, it's very, very condescending here, uh, which is, I think was what the people were kind of latching onto. But I think he's just being very Scottish. Um, yeah. So Bill, so we go, so back to Bill. So we've got to get this back and forth going on. And then we're back to Bill, who convinces the Romans. These who we find out that they deserted because they were afraid. They deserted the uh, the the legion and and have not confronted the uh, the beast in battle. Um, but she uh, convinces him to look for the doctor because he can do something for the about the creature, um, and uh, she says uh, this this line, which is a good line. I can't promise you won't die, but I can promise that you won't die in a hole in the ground, um, mm-hmm. which which is a which is a good line. And so she's you know she kind of uh, emboldens them and gives them the courage to uh, to go out and um, face face their fate. Um, yeah, I thought it was a dramatically effective line, but I was also thinking from the perspective of the Roman soldiers as, wait, it was getting into this hole that saved us in the first place. <laughs> right. So. <laughs> well, they're eventually going to die in that hole if they don't get out and get more food and, and that sort of thing. So, I mean, they can't stay in there. Um, mm-hmm. And the creature is obviously trying to get in. Uh, so, And it does at one point, as we see. Um, but the doctor makes a plan with the picks. They reveal uh, that the, the portal opens a few times a year sort of to... To relieve the pressure of some sort, like a, like an uh, oil well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure how that works. It's a interdimensional thing. 
Um, and then he yeah, says, "Who knew Nardole had such had had a had a background in the oil industry?" <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, it, so, and the doctor has a as he's as he's talking with Kari, he has a um, he has a line where he says, "If you want to win a war, you have to remember it's not about you. It's time to grow up." And in, in this point, I kind of felt like the doctor was talking about himself in some way about how mm. you know his own past, um, yep. his own yeah. uh, the the time war and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, I kind of I kind of like that implication there that it was it wasn't so much about him it was it was as as much about him telling them to grow up as he was telling himself that he had to grow up uh, in order to face things and and notice how much his attitude has shifted from a couple of seasons ago with Danny Pink where he was just Mister Anti Armed Forces to up to his eyeballs. Yes. Where he was mm-hmm. just childishly sticking out his tongue or his middle finger at uh, anything having to do with military. Yeah. And here he's counseling war. Well, right. the interesting thing is these this phrase about it's not about you comes, you know, comes back to bite him here at the end of the episode. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, yeah. It's not about what you and how you want it to be done. You know, it, it kind of comes back to bite him. That's which true. is I, which is meta and ironic because the show is about him, and that's why he doesn't get to carry on with his plan because it would end the show. Exactly, <laughs> because it's all about him. <laughs> yeah. But it's also another another discussion that kind of parallels Bill's you know speech about you know you're being afraid, but that's okay because you know bravery, courage. This is something I've had discussions with my own kids. Bravery and courage is not about not being. Afraid. It's about being afraid and doing what needs to be done anyway. You know, yep. you know, it's it's just it's it's overcoming the fear or setting the fear aside. Even you know, uh, deal. With, I'll deal with you later. I'm gonna. I gotta do this thing, and I'll yeah. be afraid later. Um, and so I did think that was a nice nice parallel in the writing between the Romans and Bill talking about fear, and yep. the Picts and the Doctor talking about fear, and kind of having the same message more or less. Right. Right. You know. I, I, I liked aspects of both conversations, um, and I certainly appreciate the truth of the fact that bravery is being afraid and, and you know, doing what needs to be done in spite of it. But I've had that fact explained to me in so many TV shows and movies that I've kind of <laughs> learned it by now. It's true. This is true. Uh, I, I, uh, what did I see? Uh, Hacksaw Ridge recently, which was another explanation yep. of that. Um, that's true. Um, it's, a, it's a trope. Uh, so the Romans, they're making their way through this labyrinth of tunnels. Um, they encounter the beast. You have, uh, speaking of tropes, the impatient fellow who pushes ahead despite uh, being you know, given a, a caution and ends up being the, the bait or the distraction of the, for the beast so that everyone else can climb up the ladder uh, into the picked hut um, where there's a standoff um, because we, you know, we still haven't learned to trust one another you know, to come together because of the beast, uh, to, you know, to face the beast together. Uh, I like the fact that Nardole is uh, blending in and eating popcorn off in the corner, yeah. off to the side. <laughs> yeah, and this is uh, where we get the second line from Bill about, what are you doing? And it's, I'm blending in. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> well, he uh, uses his, uh, his uh, Scottish accent Scott- Oh, yeah. Welcome to our country. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, uh, it was great. And then... Um, so the, then the, there's this this moment where they kind of talk about that they can now understand each other's language, um, and then right. there's this 
line, when you can understand what everyone in the universe is saying, they all sound like children. And that one left me scratching my head. I, I didn't understand, like, why? Like, why does, when you can I understand think, what everybody's saying, they sound like children? Uh, I, 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 I think that... I think that's a line they didn't mean for us to think too deeply about. I mean, it kind of plays off the fact that both sides are children here and they're mm -hmm. acting like, actually they're acting kind of a lot like adults would in this situation. They're both being kind of childish. Mm -hmm. um, when you uh, ever, I mean, there's a natural <clears throat> human proclivity because of our past, you know, just the way we grew up as a species towards tribalism and tribes look out for their own interests, which is kind of childish and self-centered in a certain way. Uh, the tribe's interests take priority over, can we work with this other tribe and everyone will be better off? Mm -hmm. And so a natural part of fighting and our, our nature is growing beyond our kind of self-centered and tribe-centered horizons to be able to work with others. And that's part of the, when you make that leap to understanding the language of another group, suddenly you can realize that both groups are being kind of self-centered and they need to both take a broader perspective. So I think that's what is being played off here. Well, and I, it all, and that's it, kind of, they kind of reference okay. that where the doctor says you, you also you basically says you all sound like children except one. Nardole, of course, of course, says, "Well, thank you. I wasn't talking about you. <laughs> right. yeah. Talking about Bill. Bill. I have a feeling. Right. Yeah, that was my sense too. Also, um, this is an interesting twist on a. I don't know if it's conscious or not, but it's an interesting twist on a famous sci-fi line um, that, you know, the Babel fish that allows the universal understanding of languages leads to more and bloodier wars than anything else in history. <laughs> right. Well, yes, uh, that is a uh, who uh, connection because of uh, Douglas Adams uh, being a writer at one point. And script editor yeah, for Doctor um, Who. But yeah, he loved to turn things on their head like that, uh, which is which is one of the things that was great about him. Um so the doctor tells them to grow up because the eaters are locusts who uh, seek cracks into other dimensions so they can eat everything until until there's not even the stars left in the sky. Uh, and that, that gets their attention. Yeah, and this is one of my peeves with Doctor Who. It's ramping up the drama needlessly. Right. Um, you don't, and first of all, there's no way the creature we saw could eat the sun. I mean, this is a this is a dinosaur-sized creature with some face tentacles that glow. Well, even a little bit of bioluminescence. It's this right. can't get off the Earth. It well, even if there are millions stars. of them, yeah, right. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, it, so they they could kill they could kill all the major you know large large mammals on Earth, but that's about it. Um, so this is just needlessly upping the stakes. And my problem is if you're always turning up the stakes of the drama to eleven then it, it loses its punch. You need to have alternation between big stories and small stories. Um, this is something I've been thinking about recently. If I ever wrote for Doctor Who, I would want to write an episode titled Survival is Enough. And the the central point of this episode would be nothing else is on the line but the survival of the characters we care about. Right. Nothing. There's no, the world is not in danger. The universe is not in danger. Time is not, the timeline is not going to be destroyed. We're just in some 
small location where the characters we care about have their lives under threat. And it can be a satisfying drama if all they do is survive. Survival is enough in dramatic terms. You don't have to constantly be putting the entire universe in danger. Right. And there are so many stories uh, that I can, I'm just off the top of my head, recall where that would have been, they they could have done that and you know, they just could have dialed things back just a little bit and and it w- and that would be that way i mean even like you said this episode yeah. right they just here. leave out that reference and just say these creatures could eat all the creatures you know could destroy everything on earth you know or even forget earth they're going to come out they're on the other side of that thing they're going to come out tomorrow morning at dawn and you're all going to die if you don't work together right yeah. right exactly exactly so um so we move back to the cairn, uh, and the doctor's plan is to use the music of the of the picks to lure the beast to the cairn, and then drive it back through the gate. Um, the, you know, we know that they can only come through one at a time. So the doctor says, "I'm going to stand in the breach." Uh, I, you know, he's effectively immortal, especially since um, you know he can regenerate, and time dilation is a as a factor. He would he would be able to stand there until uh, the end of time. Um, and- right. By the way, this is the first explanation of regeneration that Bill has. She's right. heard the word before, but now she knows kind of what it means. Right. Um, now, th- this is where I kind of had a problem. Well, well let's f- let's get to the end of this scene, and then I'll go- bring back bring up my problem, which is uh, so the the monster comes and they use the the light shining through the paddles as sort of primitive Ghostbuster. Uh, <laughs> Uh, backpacks to 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 uh, ensnare the, the 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 monster the beast. Um, yeah, there's also a line. If you miss it, it goes because it goes by kind of quick. You'll yeah. be wondering. Well, wait. This is an eater of light. Why are they fighting it with light? The answer is those crystals, according to an earlier line in the episode, yeah. mm-hmm. poison the light while the beast is feeding. And so they're effectively by shining this light on it through the crystals, they're feeding it poison. Right. Right. Exactly. So uh, they force the creature back through the gate, and then the doctor is, you know, says, "I'm I'm going to hold the gate." Uh, but the Picts and the Romans together decide that they'll hold it instead. But I'm left with saying, like, so how does this solve the lifespan problem? Like, yeah. if they're all going in at once, then it's whatever the longest lifespan of any one of them is is how long they're going to be able to hold it. Not, uh, you know, the. I mean, I suppose right. the reason it opened every generation is because the war, the 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 single warrior standing in the gate eventually dies. Um, yeah, apparently. So it opens a few times a year or something. There's a new warrior there, and, but the warriors die over time. They need to be replaced. Um, but the warriors aren't. So this is. It kind of gets back to my original problem, which I thought the time dilation applied to the entire interior of the cairn. So that if you went into the cairn, it was going to be two days later when you came out a few seconds later. Right. And I missed visually the fact that the doctor crossed the threshold into the other dimension. So apparently the warriors and, and that led to a problem in my mind of, well, why isn't the daylight flashing back and forth every second? due to this time dilation inside the cairn. Why isn't this thing opening every couple of seconds? Um, But uh, if the time dilation is something that applies only to the other dimension, then the guardians of the gate are living in this world. They don't cross into the other dimension. They live in this world. They wait for the Eater of Light to come out and beat it back. 
then they go back to the village and raise families and come back a few times a year. Um, so that's why they need to be replaced. But so their solution here is to have the Romans and Carr cross the threshold so exactly. they're all time dilated and will live battling the beasts, I guess, for thousands of years. It's not a permanent solution like the doctor, but it's a multi-thousand year solution. Correct. Yeah, because if you're talking, you know, 10 seconds that the doctor was in the portal itself was two years or two two days and eight hours and five minutes and, you know, Nardo is going to keep Good going memory. on. Thank you. Um, if, you know, if, if it's that long, I mean, then you think of a year inside the portal would be hundreds of years thousands of years maybe on this side of the portal right presumably not requiring uh food drink sleep uh the normal human they'll eat the beast as they (laughs) slay (laughs) them yeah (laughs) i mean i don't want to have to push it too far i mean of course it it is but we're pointing out we're pointing out weaknesses here and this is a, this is a weak ending, which is not uncommon for this era of Doctor Who to have hand-waving endings. Right. I mean, the the thing we're supposed to take away from this is the uh, two groups of, of young people uh, who are at war have come together in peace to fight a common foe and to save the world. Uh, yeah. That's seen it, got the t-shirt. <laughs> exactly. <Yep. laughs> um, we get this uh, the, 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 this line that they'll know your name forever, that, that Carr and her brother have this moment, um, and he, he vows that, the, that her name will be remembered. Uh, the cairn collapses because there's too many people in the gate. Um, oh, and- yeah, another total, to- this is just literary finger painting <laughs> in terms of script art. It's like, you realize this how? I mean, couldn't the cairn just be buried under Earth over the course of time due to natural erosion? Right, but exactly. Whatever. But, but we need to run. We need a moment where we have to run out of the the cairn. Um, the crow. Uh, you know, we find out that crows say "car" uh, not because uh, they are uh, in a huff, but because they're repeating "car's" name forever. So apparently, crows have a Boston accent. They they say "car." I was going to say the fascinating <laughs> thing from this is that crows have a non-rotic accent. <laughs> exactly. um, rotic accents are ones where you pronounce the final R. Non-rotic ones are where you don't pronounce the final R unless it's followed by a vowel. Yes. So apparently, crows have a non-rotic accent, which actually is common in the British Isles. Yes, that's true. Yes, the we we uh, the Bostonians here uh, have something in common with Scotsmen in that in that sense. Uh, so, but, well, the episode is not over, um, despite what we think. This, the, the immediate story is over. And I think maybe perhaps this is where we, uh, we switch from uh, Rona Monroe's writing to Stephen Moffat, because we're, what we're doing is we're setting up the finale at this point. By the way, one thing before we leave Scotland here. Um, so, we flash back to the future and see the kids again, and the little right. girl is listening to the music. Yes. And this is another... It's poetic, but where the heck is this music coming from? <laughs> well, you Nar- Nardole I mean, hears the music, or no, Bill hears the music. No, Bill hears the music. As she's yeah. getting the, in the TARDIS, and the doctor kind of s- says something along the lines of, well, that mu- music has a way of doing that, like crossing dimensions. and Yeah, and being played at our speed, even though it's in a time-dilated zone. And who's, who's whipped out the bagpipes in the battle with the leaders of light? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the the elderly folk who were playing the music uh, that lured them in, they actually walked in there with them. So the the musicians, I got uh, you know, to give them the credit. Yeah. The musicians did walk okay. into the into the gate with them. I'm not you, sure why. 
but they did. Yeah. Okay. Even, even if the music is worse than jazz. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I actually says. like bab type music. But, yes, okay. uh, but uh, Nardole is not a fan. Uh, Okay, so let me give them a little bit of credit here, because if they had the old people with the bagpipes going into the portal, um, you do have um, military musicians in the history of warfare to play during battles to keep up morale. And so, like, that's why you have drummer boys and things like that on the battlefield. So that could be the explanation of that. But it doesn't solve the crossing dimensions or what speed are we playing this music at problems. (laughs) Yes, the 33 and a third problem. Oh, now, there's 78. Now, that is a, if you're under the age of about 40, you have no idea what I'm talking about. But (laughs) 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 so uh, we're back in the TARDIS uh, and uh, Nardola is shocked to find Missy waiting inside who apparently has been waiting in the TARDIS for several days now uh, for them to come back. Uh, Nardole, again, we goes, goes back to this type that he's been playing. You know, He's mad because she's supposed to be in the vault. Um, and the doctor sort of dismisses it and then asks her what she thinks of what happened. Um, and he says something along the lines of... Uh, um, she, she, she sort of uh, the, this dismissive recitation of facts. And he says, that's what I'm trying to teach you. You understand the universe, but you never learn to hear the music which is an interesting sort of uh, uh, mm-hmm. statement here. I'm not sure of the full. Uh, it's sort of it's like a. You ahead. don't get the you're a psychopath. You understand how things work, but you don't get the emotional feeling that you're supposed to from those facts. Right. And therefore, you don't have the empathy that you need to. Right. Right. And so then the doctor, we, we, we kind of cut away to the to the kids in the present day. And back to the TARDIS, where the doctor plays that music for Missy, and she cries, um, and she has this this tear, you know, this tear going down her. Day. And there's this question, you know, um, yeah. is it real? Is she is she really changed, or is she, is, or is this a long game she's playing, and another deception um, that we? Can and she o- points it out, right? Mm-hmm. Which itself could be a deception. <laughs> yes. This is the problem. You know, this is the problem of the master. A, a good problem, which is yeah. she's so devious that you just you can you, we we can never trust her. Um, mm-hmm. And in fact, the 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 you know, the doctor says the alternative is worse. The alternative is that this is for real, and it's time for us to become friends again. And and the, why is that so bad? And and because as he says, hope is hard to resist. You know, it gives him hope, and hope is hard to resist. You know, these these scenes with Missy um, just really made me kind of appreciate Michelle Gomez as an actress. Yes. Because, you know, previous seasons, you know, she was over the top all the time. And she was the master. Bananas. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. exactly. And now she's actually having to come down to earth. The subtlety. Subtlety. Yeah, bring in subtlety and bring in emotion. And it's just incredible. I mean, yeah. the, the change that they that she's brought to that character over this season has been incredible. That's true. Right. And so she's and, and as they point out here, <clears throat> she's still a prisoner because she's been bio locked to the TARDIS. She can't leave either. So the doctor's basically just relocated her prison. But he's we have a step away from her just being in the vault. And as we'll find out in the teaser, she's going to take another step away from the vault next episode. And so this is <clears throat> part of that transition. And. I think the fact that they had Missy herself point out, you know, this could be a game that I'm playing is their way of, you know, pointing out the issue that's going to be on the fans' minds. 
and addressing it in a way that doesn't completely resolve it, but takes some of the edge off of it. And mm-hmm. I think another thing that does that is not only does she cry in front of the doctor, when the doctor leaves, having because she's obviously hopeful they can be friends again. As soon as he says that, mm-hmm. she just is steps closer to him and wants to touch him and wants to make that friendship real again. And then he talks about hope and pulls away and walks off. And when he's gone, she sheds another tear, which Mm -hmm. he can't see. And so this tear, no matter what the former was, this one is real. And this shows that she really is in emotional turmoil. Whether she's playing a game or trying to go straight or some combination of both, she is in turmoil about this. And so it's not – if it is a game – it's not simply a game. It's something she really feels. Right. We've seen that before where, you know, even when she's trying to defeat the doctor, she's also, you know, compelled to, <clears throat> even even before, even, you know, with John Sim, doctor, yeah. um, there was, a uh, master, I'm sorry, uh, there was this f- sense that even as he hates the doctor, he, he wants to be friends, too. He want you know, there's that, I mean, because he's a psychopath and that's, yeah. that's, He's kind of a split mm-hmm. there, but there's this you know, compulsion to I, I I you know I want to be friends with you, but I hate you, and and that's that yeah. you see that through throughout this. And I've been in preparation for the like the the stuff we're going to have coming up with the master. I've been going back and watching the original introduction of the master with Roger Delgado, and oh, sure. he he appeared in it, there was it was actually kind of the first season arc or one of the first season arcs in Doctor Who, they had the master stranded on Earth for a season and he appeared in every episode. And Mm -hmm. this was back during the third Doctor, John Pertwee's day when he was first introduced. And so he was first introduced in Terror of the Autons. The Doctor already knew him. Uh, They had been friends on Gallifrey. The master had had a higher rating in school than the Doctor did. And and the master has this need for attention Um, The doctor points out one of his problems is vanity, and he deliberately delays killing the doctor over and over again uh, on the pretext that it's going to be more satisfying when he finally does kill the doctor. But it's clear there's more going on between these two characters. The master, in some sense, doesn't really want to kill him. And in... The second appearance of the Master in The Mind of Evil, um, there's a kind of mind parasite that shows you your worst fears. And when it shows the Master his worst fear, it's the Doctor laughing at him. And so the already back then, the Master desperately needed the Doctor's attention and approval. And so mm-hmm. all of this stuff with Michelle Gomez is really going back to the very founding of the character of the Master. And in watching those old episodes, I keep thinking, wow, Michelle Gomez could have just done this and delivered this line. And so I've been really impressed by the way they're paying off things that were there in Roger Delgado's Master in Missy's Master. Mm. This is what you get from having fans uh, write for the show and and uh, yeah. running the show. That's exactly. the, the benefit. So before we get to the teaser for, for the the first part of the season finale starting next week, I want to bring up something else that we were talking about before the, the show we started recording. Um, after the, f- the last two episodes, there was, there's a big gap until the Christmas special. Um, and then who knows how long until the next series begins with the new Doctor. Um, and we, you know, we, it took us 18 months 
to get to this season of of no Doctor Who except for two Christmas specials, um, and we didn't really record anything. And we've talked in the past about recording stuff in between uh, seasons or series, uh, you know, about stuff. But what would we record? What would we talk about? Um, and we we wanted to solicit ideas from you, the listener. What do you want to hear from us? If you know, I, I don't think we would rec- necessarily record every week, perhaps. Or maybe we would do shorter episodes of 30 minutes or so, uh, if you believe that we could talk for 30 minutes on Doctor Who at a time and stop ourselves. Um, <laughs> all I'll things set, are possible. All things are possible. Maybe set a timer <laughs> and say, we'll continue this conversation next time or something like that. But what, what we talked about, we talked about we could do themes. We could, you know, look at um, each each doctor, you know, the, 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 you know the, 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 the whole tenure of the 10th doctor, the whole tenure of the 11th doctor. Um, you know what their term as doctor what it was like um we could look at we could go back and do um classic who seasons we could you know uh, look at those episodes um we could we could cover villains you know uh, we could you know all the the stories of daleks or or the the weeping angels um all these things are possible um what do you think what would you like to hear about uh, us talk about I mean, we've only been doing this since the first episode of uh, Peter Capaldi as the Twelfth Doctor. So there's so much more that we haven't done that we we haven't had a chance to do. What do you? What would you like to hear about? Um, I mean, do you guys yeah. have any uh, thing you want to throw to sort of uh, to start generating ideas uh, from the listeners? I well, <clears throat> we've obviously since we started with Peter Capaldi, that's after the fiftieth anniversary. So there's fifty years of TV and movies. And spinoff products back there that we can talk about. Right. Um, one thing that I'd like to talk about um, that can help bridge the gap between seasons of Doctor Who is the Big Finish productions. Because they have the actual cast from the show doing new licensed stories in audio format. And when there's not Doctor Who on the air, listening to those is a great way to keep in touch with the Hooniverse. And so I know I'd like to talk about that in some upcoming episodes as a way of helping other uh, podcast listeners bridge the gap between TV seasons. Yeah, the the big, the, the, what, was it, what was it called? The big audio? Big Finish. Big Finish. Big Finish. They're essentially audio books yep. or audio plays. Yep. Audio uh, plays, audio yeah. Audio plays uh, featuring, you know, David Tennant. Is like, like in fact, they recently had like a, a David Tennant and um, uh, the actress plays Donna Noble. Um, they uh, did a... a yeah. A, a tenth Doctor uh, adventure, like a few months ago, you know. So that like, yeah. it's recording this new these new things with your favorite. Um, I mean, you know, Who fans, uh, of course. I'm sure you know and, about it, but and they they've had all of the living Doctors except Christopher Eccleston do these things, mm-hmm. and they fill in fascinating little bits of Doctor Who history, like. Um, I was mentioning before we, we started recording, there's a big finish uh, audio play called Spare Parts with Peter Davidson's Fifth Doctor that explores the origin of the Cybermen. And obviously the Cybermen are going to be important in the season finale um, <clears throat> that we're about to hit. And so it, w- it would be a great time for people to look up spare parts by mm-hmm. big finish and get some additional background on how they all started. There's some fascinating stuff there in their culture. Um, also the war doctor, uh, we only saw him on camera in the 50th anniversary special, right. but big finish has a line of audio plays starring John hurt as the war doctor. Yep. 
So you can listen to his adventures during the Great Time yep. War. Um, there, there's also there, the Eighth Doctor. There's a yeah. lot of lot of stories with uh, the Eighth Doctor and with companions that they've made up going on with him. And I was just going to say, uh, because they've kind of, and they treat any discrepancies as a product of the Time War, but they uh, they've they've included these audio plays. They've referenced them as canonical in the Modern Who series, because when Paul McGann's Doctor is about to regenerate in Night of the Doctor, he says, of, he, he commemorates all of his companions that he's only had in the Big Finish audio plays, and he names them on air, and so thus includes them in the canon. This is a big, a big key, because in other... Um other genre uh universes like Star Trek or Star Wars, you know, the much of like in Star Trek, anything that's not on screen, that's not you know, shown on screen is not canon until it's right. sh- until you see it on screen. Or um in Star mm-hmm. Trek Star Wars is a little more complicated, um but you know, they at one point went back and said, Okay, everything after this before this point, produced before this point, is not necessarily canon anymore because we're starting fresh. Um Whereas with with you know Doctor Who, it's this stuff is very clearly if it's licensed by the BBC, it's very clearly part of the canon, part of the Doctor Who universe. So it's certainly fodder for our discussion. So you know we we want to hear from you what you want to listen to. We want to keep this going. We're having a blast making these episodes, and we know that you know I I don't want to wait eighteen months to talk to to Jimmy and Father Corey about Doctor Who. I want to- you know, <laughs> one thing we could consider too is uh, any news as new news comes up with production with. Things uh, that are happening in the Doctor Who universe, we yeah, can bring yeah. some of that in. If we don't know who the new Doctor is going to be, the actor playing the new Doctor is going to be by the end of these next two episodes. I mean, that's certainly news that we would yeah. want to come back and discuss. If there's a change in companions, um, and, you know, we hear news about uh, new actors joining. That's certainly stuff we could we could also discuss. Um, you know, we don't te- we haven't tended to be a a news related uh, podcast, but we can bring in some of that stuff just to kind of give our our background our, our our spin. We have a particular Secrets of Doctor Who kind of way of ta- looking at things, and um, we can give our take on that. Um, so, if you have ideas, you can give it the. You can give us feedback on our Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash Secrets of Doctor Who, on our tridia on tridio.com on the, the 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 comments there, or you can send us an email to Doctor Who at sqpn.com. There'll be a link in the show notes, so uh, so don't worry about there. You go to tridio.com or look in the show notes on your uh, podcast player. Um, but yeah, like we we want to keep that's, going. That's D O C T O R who. Yeah, so well, it's spelled out. Yes, or it, it'll. I'll be honest. It'll work if you do D R who as well. So, but I spelled it out. Uh, Doctor who uh, uh, at sqpn.com. So um, with that, I want to. Play the sound of the trailer for next week's, um, the first part of the two-part series finale, Doctor finale, uh, Stephen Moffat finale, um, and then we could have a a little bit of discussion just of what we hear, um, but we'll save, of course, the the big um, discussion for once we've seen it next week. So uh, here's the sound of the trailer. I pick a scenario, we drop her down into it, and we see how she does. Hello. I am that mysterious adventurer in all of time and space, and these are my disposables. I promise you won't get me killed. I said this was a bad idea. A 400-mile ship reversing away from the gravitational pull of a black hole. I'm so sorry, but you're the reason that they're coming. 
What are they? A fantastic Cyberman. Give us a kiss. <laughs> <laughs> the Mondasian Cyberman. <laughs> I like, but I, just right off the bat, I like when Missy, she's apparently, he's going to have her sort of um, play acting. Be the doctor. At, at being the doctor. Um, and she, but she, instead of referring to Nardole and, and, and Bill as her companion, she calls them her disposables, uh, which is yeah, yep. kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. So the master has <clears throat> always been a mirror image of the doctor. And so it's natural if he's rehabilitating her to have her flip and and be the doctor and see how she does in that role. Can she perform the same kind of function as a galactic time traveler that he does in terms of helping people? And so that's obviously what they're going to be experimenting with next episode mm-hmm. is can the Missy can Missy do the same kind of thing the doctor does? And obviously she's not perfect at it yet. Um, right. So There's that's going to really- be back back to some of the camp. That's for sure. You know, yeah. just some of the acting she's done in that little clip is pretty campy. It's going to be fun. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting that Bill and Nardole are not on board with this plan. I wouldn't um, be. <laughs> yeah. um, also, we have the uh, the appearance of the Cybermen again in their earliest Mondasian version. Mondas being the planet they originally came from. By the way, before we went on, uh, Dom, you suggested I mention this. Uh, before we started recording, I mentioned a fact I recently learned. The Cybermen were created by a guy named Kit Peddler. And his original idea for them was that they were a race of star monks who were on a religious mission. And that could play into the theories that we've talked about that maybe the monks from the monks trilogy are actually a version of the Cybermen. So they may be pulling that bit from kind of behind the scenes pre-production stuff on the Cybermen. They may be pulling that into the mythology now. We'll have to wait and see. Um, Also, we got at the very end, we got uh, John Sims master, so we know we know he's going to be around. That'll make this the first on-screen story with two masters, but it's not the first story with two masters because there is a big finish audio play called the two masters already so mm. you might want to check that out in prep for seeing what we get on tv which uh which versions of the masters was that uh um it's uh so uh after roger delgado died prematurely in time ta- he was in a car crash in turkey uh mm. his driver went off a cliff um Ouch. and and um while he was filming a movie. And uh, so they couldn't use him anymore. And so during Tom Baker's era, they had a guy named Christopher Beavers appear as the master, but he had been horribly disfigured. He was like burned. And so he has this, you know, black burned costume and soot all over his face, which has been partially eaten away by the fire. And so, uh, but he nevertheless was very charming despite the fact he was a charred corpse. And, (laughs) um, and so it's Christopher Beaver's master is one of them because Christopher Beaver's is still alive. And so they could get him to play the master. And then another version of the master that they created specifically for big finish audio. Okay. Interesting. That might be worthwhile. I mean, because this is the thing. This is the big question this season is: is if John Sim is coming back, then how do we reconcile that with with Michelle Gomez? And we have a perfect who, explanation. Who oh. Well, we have a perfect explanation um, that in the in the fiftieth anniversary special, which is we had three doctors on screen at once, this from different eras. It is entirely possible we have 
two doctor, two masters from two different eras that somehow John Sim gets brought forward. I mean, yeah. when we go back to uh, his last episode um, at the end of, I mean, this was that was basically the last Russell T Davies episode. Yes, running it the end um, of time. And what happened to the master there? I mean, they didn't exactly he, die. No, he. Uh, they've opened the portal to Gallifrey, and the master has been charged up with all of this energy that he's blasting. He has these four big knocks yeah. that uh, that sort of relate to the prophecy of he will knock four times, and then he basically leaps into the rift uh, and is sealed inside of the time war with the other time lords. Mm-hmm. And and then at some point Missy shows up and we, we we it's never been answered where did she come from out of this and perhaps right. the answer is she, Missy is an earlier incarnation of the master from because the John Sin master comes out of the uh, the master that is found at the end of time right uh, at the end of the universe uh, maybe she maybe Missy is a doctor from a time before that. We've never it's actually possible. we've never actually had that uh, you know explained to us where where they came from. Right. I'm suspecting we're going to see a master regeneration, and the question will be who regenerates into who. Mm, that would be interesting because because it could be you know that John Sims escaped from the time war or did so after the Doctor you know because Gallifrey's back somewhere it's no longer time locked mm-hmm. right and so he could have left as John Sims and then become Missy. Or Missy could regenerate into John Sim, so I could see that going either way. Well, she wouldn't con- regenerate into John Sim directly because John's. We Why saw not? well, we saw that um, John, the John Sim master, re- uh, regenerated out of the elderly doctor uh, at the elderly end of time. Oh, the, I mean, the elderly right. master you're at right. the end of time. From so played by Derek to, Jacobi. Yeah, yeah. So she'd have to regenerate into him. Uh, but again, entirely mm-hmm. possible that the, that we haven't heard that he's going to be. In this, in the you know, in the episodes, but uh, it's it's just an interesting question that can only come out of a Doctor Who episode, <laughs> like of who yep. becomes whom and and that sort of stuff. Um, it's I'm looking forward to it. This is going to be great. Uh, so, uh, anything else we need to say about about uh, this episode or uh, our preview of next week? Um, if not, uh, that that's it from us. Uh, we've got another a ninety minute episode for you folks. Uh, I'm I'm sorry, but this is what you get. There's so much to say, so much to do. Uh, tell us what you think of the uh, Eaters of Light. Um, let us know by vis- or any of the other things we brought up, especially by the way, uh, what you want to hear from us in future episodes. Let us know uh, visiting uh, tridio.com, our Facebook page, Secrets of Doctor Who. Leave us feedback. Send us email at doctorwho at sqpn.com. Uh, we'll be back next week. Like I said, we'll be discussing the first part of this two-part season finale, Doctor finale. The uh, world—it's called World Enough and Time. Uh, until then, Father Corey, where can people find you online? Uh, easiest place is my website, frcorey.org, or Facebook, uh, frcoreystika. Last name spelled S-T-I-C-H-A. And Jimmy, where can people find everything uh, uh, related to you? It's including your Doctor Who stuff. At uh, jimmyakin.com. That's J I M M Y A K I N.com. Excellent. Then you can find me at betnet.com, B E T T N E T.com. You can find all my social media links there. Uh, so thank you for listening. And remember, that's the trouble with hope. It's hard to resist. When will I see you again? Uh, soon, I expect. Or later. One of those.